return of the midweeks. Welcome back. We're at the midweeks, and we are just going to keep rocking with the book of First Samuel. I'm loving this book. The more I dig into it, the more I enjoy it. And I hope you're getting blessed from it as well. We're doing a close reading of the book. So we're going line by line. We're trying to see everything that God has put on this book. Well, not everything. You may have noticed I'm not a big archaeological fact buff. Um, I'm more of a reading this book for the themes and theology and character that's coming out of it. I think I'm reading that faithfully to the Bible. I don't think that it's primarily meant to be a resource for archaeological information. I think it's primarily meant to be a communication from God, a revelation of his character, and a revelation of human nature as well as a chronicle of God's dealings with the world as he invades the fallen world in order to redeem it through uh, Abraham, through Israel, through Christ and his church. I think that's the story of the Bible. So anyhow, what we've been saying is that this book is about the formation of the kingdom of Israel as it transitions from judges to the kingship. It's about the lives of the early kings and their relationships with their sons. It's ultimately about two things. It's about character studies of faith. All the Old Testament is about the righteous shall live by faith. That's what Paul says. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of the Old Testament, even with all the laws and stuff. And if you keep your eyes open for it, you'll see that it's the people who have faith walks with God that God receives, whether they're prostitutes, youngest shepherd boys, and everything in between. It's those who walk with God by faith who walk with God, even in the Old Testament. And ultimately, this is about God's reign in the world and the display of his character. So, without further ado, we're going to get into one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, which is the story of David and Goliath. And one of the things, before I start reading this, I just want to let you know that some scholars have said that this story is evidence that the Bible is just not a continuous story, but chunks of stories uh, stapled together, taped together roughly, but there isn't a single unifying voice through this story. And the reason is, is because we just met David in the last chapter, and then it seems like we're meeting David afresh in this chapter, and it seems like Saul doesn't know who David is all of a sudden. And so some people have looked at this and said, aha, the Old Testament is just a bunch of bits of stories roughly glued together. The only way to understand the Bible is to tear these bits apart and see what each person was trying to say. But I'm going to advocate for a unity of the stories of the Bible and suggest that the the way that this is put together is more about themes and presentations than about necessarily giving us the most detailed timeline possible. It's more about speaking through presentation than giving timelines. Okay, so We'll, I'll just, this is a long chapter, it's really long, so I'm just going to read and then make comments. I won't read the whole thing first. First Samuel 17, starting verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, encamped between Soko and Azekah in Aphes-Damim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Eli and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side with a valley between them. Okay, so here's the presentation. We've left the whole scenario with David ministering to Saul, and now we're just in a completely other scenario. And notice it doesn't give us a time frame. It doesn't explain what's going on. So there could be some time change here, whatever it is. We are now in a completely different scene. And we've zoomed out to see entire armies gathered together. We don't know what precipitated this battle or whatever. We knew that Saul fought the Philistines his entire life. But we have this valley presented and the Philistines are on one side and the Israelites are on the other. Why isn't anything happening? Well, here's why. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had, a bron- he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Okay, so let's pause there. So we get this... Uh, picture of this Philistine giant and some people have suggested and it might be true that he is being presented kind of like this giant serpent again do you remember the first person Saul fought was Nahash and his name means snake and now we are meeting another snake it's this giant snake it's this giant person who's covered in scale mail who so he would look like a big serpent with all his armor on and he's got this weaver's beam which probably means that the beam was notched for grip to the way a weaver's beam has like um, things around it for helping with the weaving Um, I'm not totally sure though I'm not an expert in weaving and he's got this shield bearer before him now one of the things I was thinking just while I was reading this is that in this entire story you're kind of thinking well where's Jonathan the last time the Philistines really had the Israelites cornered Jonathan showed up and Jonathan was the one that precipitated the battle but Jonathan doesn't even really show up in the scene at all as far as I remember now maybe he will and I've forgotten but we'll adjust as we get there but Jonathan was the hero of the last time Israel was in trouble but he's not going to be the hero this time and I'm kind of reminded by the fact that Goliath has a shield bearer. Remember, Jonathan and his shield bearer took out the Philistines all by themselves last time. All right. He stood, verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, a few things going on here, okay? So Goliath is out there terrifying them, and that's good. Um, Demoralizing an army is almost as good as defeating them because when people are afraid, they fight very poorly. But the other thing that's going on here is there is a bit of an echo. Remember, um, Israel wanted to choose a king for themselves to fight against their enemy. And they did. They picked Saul. And now here is this Philistine saying, pick a man for yourselves to fight against your enemies. And Saul's right there, but he won't go. And so, again, you have this kind of this theme where when Israel was functioning in the flesh, they chose a man for themselves and his name was Saul. But now that this this giant's come who's even more fleshly than Israel was. Israel's giant is not 
uh, faith-filled enough to go and uh, attack him. Remember, Saul was Israel's giant. He was bigger than all the Israelites physically, but he's not going out to fight against the Philistines giant. So part of the message of the Bible here is in the flesh, most likely the enemies of God will have the giants, the bigger giants on their side. They'll have more flesh on their side. And so what we need is not flesh. What we need is faith. We need faith in the power of God. And faith is one thing that Saul and the Israelites don't have at this moment. They're greatly afraid. Now, so we've got that scenario, and now we're going to switch to David in verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judea named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah, and David was the youngest. And the three eldest of Saul, the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed the father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now, so we're meeting David again, and some of the reasons scholars think that this is a different unit is because you get so much description of David that we already have in the last chapter. Now, I would say, look at how similar it is, and what you're actually getting here is the author trying to weave these stories together. So he's being intentional about presenting these things similarly. Why do I say that? Well, you get the mention of Bethlehem, and that's where Samuel had to go to find David. You get the mention of the three oldest sons' name, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, and those are the three sons that are named while Samuel was waiting for all the sons to be presented before David came. And then you just skipped over those other sons and went to the youngest, David. David. So it's the exact same, um, the same order, three named sons, and then skipping over to the youngest son. And then you also get the mention that David is off feeding the sheep. Not he's stuck there. He's going back and forth. But what's he doing when he's at home? He's feeding his father's sheep. And so you have actually a skilled presentation that's very similar to the last story. And so what it's meant to do is actually bind those stories together, not present them as similar because, or like separate because they're so similar, but actually bind them together. We're getting another introduction of David, but it seems like it doesn't fit because time has passed and we're not sure what happened in that time. It's been gapped sometimes, or blanked, sorry. Sometimes in the Old Testament stories, the authors will just blank out information that we might want in order to just answer our questions, but it doesn't see as necessary, and so it will blank it. It's not important how much time has passed. It's not important what was happening in between that time. What's important is finding out that we're the same way that David was introduced to Samuel through prophecy in that meal, and David was introduced as the psalm singer when Saul had his fits. Now David is going to be introduced as the mighty warrior who is the giant killer of Israel. And we're, by these echoes of the first introduction tell us we're being reintroduced to David with another theme of his life. All right, verse 17. And Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take ten cheeses to the commanders of their thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring them a token as well. So this is practical stuff, but it also echoes the last time when David was sent to go serve Saul by singing him songs. David's father sent gifts along to Saul at that time. So here we're meeting, again, Jesse's character of being an honoring provider. What was David's dad like? 
David's dad was the kind of guy who sent along gifts with his sons, not just to feed them, but also gifts for their commanders. He's a generous, honoring man. And remember, Jesse and David are also the children of Boaz, the generous man who took Ruth to be his wife and um, cared for her by handing out a lot of grain to her as well. So you have this family culture of generosity being handed down and taken time to explain that this is what their character was like. All right, verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Okay, so now the camera is coming back to the valley. It doesn't need to repeat that information of where they are, but it's trying to go from David's house, him getting his orders, and now we're going back to the valley and we have a change of scene. So that's why that description's there. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper um, and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And so we have this jumping back and forth. We're bridging a scene here. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So this they would probably do each morning. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keepers of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So he's doing his job and he wants to go see the battle. There's a big commotion happening. Wouldn't you want to find out what's going on? And he talked with him and behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as he did before. And David heard him. So you got that little line and David heard him, meaning that now things are going to change. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So they're backing away from the battle line. They're not even standing their ground. They're actually running away. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. So we learn a few things here, okay? So the men are afraid. They know that there's this bounty on Goliath's head. There's this promise of riches and um, his father's house free in Israel probably means that they won't get taxed anymore so they get this tax exempt status in Israel as well as a daughter and so Saul instead of going out has actually wanting to pay somebody else to do it Um, maybe he's older and maybe this is just where he is in life he's not in the one-on-one combat stage that's fine but his faith isn't up to this which is a great call for all of us to have make sure our faith is up to what we're facing and David's just not only is he somewhat interested in the bounty but he just can't understand why nobody's attacked this guy yet because his faith in God is so high he doesn't understand why Israel wouldn't attack its enemies verse 28 now Eliab his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle and David said what have I done now was it not but a word and he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way and the people gathered him again answered him again as before so One of the themes of the Bible is um, older brothers not being so great. You might remember the story of Jacob, where the older brothers did not participate with the calling that was on David's life and um, tried to really get rid of Jacob. But of course, God's calling persevered through that. And so now we have here Eliab, the older brother, who 
is also not receiving David's faith as a good thing, but actually presuming evil in his heart that David might just be here to watch people get killed, to watch the bloodbath. He's just there to gawk at the bloodbath, which isn't true. But Eliab, you know, he's there and he's not full of faith. And he might remember that David's been anointed recently and might be a little bit jealous. And so he's um, saying, get out of here, Scram. You're just here for bad reasons. He doesn't see God's hand on this guy's life. So next, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. This man has been a man of war since his youth. Okay, so here is Saul and we get to see his heart. David says, I have faith to do this. You've put this bounty on his head. And I, I, so you've called somebody else to fight this guy. And so I'm your man. I will do the fighting. And when Saul sees it, he views according to the flesh. He says, you're just a youth and this guy's a big fighter. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb for the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So here's David's faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith that's been tested before in battle against animals. And David knows that his God will provide because he hasn't died yet with all of the risky fighting he's been doing. And so he's a young man of faith. You know, a youth in Hebrew can be anything from quite a young child through teenage years. So he's a youth, but he might be like a very physically adept teenager at this time. And so they're pretty dangerous people if they know what they're doing. But he says, like, look, I've done this before. I've killed bears, I've killed lions, and this, my God will do the same thing to them. And so somewhere along the lines, he persuades Saul. And so Saul says, okay, the Lord be with you. And maybe even Saul's faith is starting to rise because of David's faith. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor and he put his helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain, but he for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Okay, so I just want to do a little think with me moment here. So David has the opportunity to take Saul's armor and he doesn't want to, and it says because he hasn't tested them. Now, if you've watched VeggieTales, they present it as Saul's armor being really big, and David, because he's a youth, doesn't fit into it, but that's not what the scripture says. It's not because David doesn't fit into it. It's because he hasn't tested them, and so essentially what the idea is, he doesn't know what it's like to fight Mortal Kombat in this armor, and so to wear it would make him feel awkward, would distract him from facing the enemy, because he wouldn't know how the armor would constrain him or enable him to fight better and so instead of um, taking this armor he just wants to go with what he's always gone with now there probably is some symbolicness to this where Saul says it's almost like Saul saying why don't you fight Goliath the way I've been fighting and instead of David 
taking on the, the kingly fighting role that Saul had, he's going to do it a different way. He's not going to take on Saul's coverings and become like Saul. Instead, he's going to take his shepherd's staff and his stones for his sling like he's always done before and he's going to remain a shepherd he's not going to become an armor-clad king he's going to remain a shepherd over the people of god and their protector so that that, that's probably in play here but just so we know the armor probably wasn't too big it was just uncomfortable for david and didn't raise his confidence in god to be wearing it verse 41 and the philistine went forward and came near to david and the shield bearer in front of him and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ready and handsome in appearance. Press pause. Remember when Samuel first met David? They had that similar description of being ready and handsome in appearance. So now we've shifted our perspective to Goliath's perspective, and we see him seeing David for the first time. And just like Samuel, they notice his physical appearance. And, uh, for Saul, or forget Goliath, sorry, this is something that just makes him want to laugh and be offended, um, which is actually his weakness, the fact that he would underestimate David's God by, by what he sees is the problem. And Saul's doing the same thing. Originally, you can't fight him because you're youth. He as- underestimates what God can do because he's thinking according to the flesh instead of according to faith. Now, Saul eventually comes around, and the fact that he does send David is a good thing. Like, let's give credit where credit's due. The fact that Saul doesn't try to stop David, but actually says yes to David going, that that does count. It's a little tick mark in his box uh, of the good things. Doesn't rescue him from his trajectory, but I think we can give credit there. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and not to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Okay, so you notice the two two perspectives there. Goliath sees David's uh, handsome appearance and his youth and says, you're dead. David sees Goliath's mocking, and he sees his God, and he says, you are dead, and actually other Philistines are dead. So Goliath just says, I'm going to kill you today. And David says, I'm going to actually give you and your army to the birds today. So there's like a heightened intensity here. But you can hear the difference of a perspective according to the flesh and a perspective according to faith. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. So here David's rushing the Philistine. There might be some wisdom in that because usually the, the armor bearers would be carrying some kind of javelin or spears. And so the closer that David gets, he can get underneath that kind of spear throwing range qu- quicker and into his own rock throwing range faster. So he's rushing the battle to get underneath this, the the advantage that the Philistine might have with his distance. And so he gets the, the stone out and he hits the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. Now there's some argument here whether or not it hit him in the forehead or in the knee. 
um, like did it hit him in the forehead and knock him out or did it hit him in the knee and paralyze him because it caught him right in the armor and made it so he couldn't move anymore and so he fell down because he couldn't move or broke his kneecap or something uh, but that doesn't really matter the idea is the stone has immobilized Goliath verse 50 so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him okay so notice here that it says that the Philistine is um, Sorry, but I'll keep going. And there was no sword in the hand of David. So it was faith and not steel or bronze. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. So just noticing the details here, it doesn't totally appear that the stone killed Goliath because it says that he was killed when with his own sword. Um... <clears throat> by cutting off his head which is really interesting right so maybe i don't know is it which one is it he struck the philistine and killed him there was no sword in his hand or he ran over took out his sword drew it out his sheath killed him and cut off his head so they're not dying to tell you exactly when his heart stopped here did he get knocked out with the stone and generally that's what killed him because it got knocked out or was it actually when the head was cut off that he died one way or the other david defeated him with no sword in his hand and killed him with his own sword which is even more humiliating than just killing him with a stone to get killed by your own weapon is complete defeat and the philistines saw this and they're obviously um, totally demoralized now the same kind of fear that goliath was inspiring in israel now they have because their giant is dead and the men of israel and judah rose with a shout to pursue the philistines as far as gath to the gates of ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arayim as far as Gath and Ekron. So it sounds like they made it back into Ekron as their walled city. And the Israelites weren't able to take that city, but they just had destroyed them along the way. And they didn't start a, a siege or surround the city. They go back and plunder the camp. So and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it into Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. Okay, so now in verse 54, you know that this is more than what's going on at this time. Because when he says he brought his head into Jerusalem, David only seizes Jerusalem when he's king years and years after. So somewhere along the lines, this head of Goliath has been preserved and becomes a trophy for David in his kingship later on when he seizes Jerusalem from the Jebusites. But right now, uh, there is no Jerusalem for David to bring it into. So you can kind of see here that that summary statement about the head of the Philistine going someplace and his armor going someplace, this is not necessarily like right at that moment that it happens. This is a larger time frame picture because there, David doesn't live in Jerusalem at this time and not for years. Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And, the, and Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And that's the end of the chapter. So again, we have this summary summary paragraph we go back to Saul's perspective and you have this um 
amount of time that doesn't line up with the story that just happened perfectly. Because remember, it says, when he saw David go out, so as soon as David leaves Saul's tent, he starts inquiring, who is this guy? To Abner, who's the leader of his army. And Abner doesn't know who he is, which is possible. There'd be lots of youth coming and going in Saul's service, and it'd be very easy for Abner not to know somebody's name, or even know that they've met him before. Um, This is years of of battle later, Saul was adding people to his entourage all the time. And so it's totally possible that even though David had come to sing songs to Saul before, that neither one of them, even though Saul loved him, that that something's gone wrong. That maybe either that was for a time and this is years later, or that they just, this is how they see people. They just see the people in the army as just not individuals and they just don't know who this guy is. Or Saul kind of remembers who this kid is but doesn't remember his family or his background so he's saying whose son is this youth so he's wanting to know his family and his background he might remember who David is but he doesn't actually know these familial connections and so he really wants to know like who is this guy who who if he beats Goliath whose family am I now going to be married to I promised a daughter to this guy so who am I about to bless and become connected to politically and Abner doesn't know but Saul might remember a little bit but it's again it's unclear and it's not the point but we do have this declaration at the end I'm the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem the Bethlehemite and so there we have it we have the longest introduction to David as the warrior king of Israel who isn't a king like Saul and has faith and and fights the battles by faith and not according to the flesh and this is a great call for us you know ultimately Jesus is the great giant king killer he's the one that that bound the strong man in order to plunder his goods Jesus says And he's bound Satan in order to plunder sinners out of the kingdom of darkness to be children of the kingdom of light. And for us as well, though, we follow in David's and Jesus' footsteps of being called to live lives of radical trust in God and not living, looking according to the flesh. And so if there's an application for us, this would be it. We're called to live by radical faith in God and not according to the might of the arm of man. And that's a challenge for all of us, especially in the West where we love, you know, the accomplishments of technology and the conveniences of Western life to actually divorce ourselves from having that be our dependence and our delight and put all of our trust in the activity and the action of the living God who shows up for people who believe in him. That can be a challenge, but that's our life. That's our life. That's the Christian life is depending on the living God to actually show up for us as we trust in him and serve him. So may the Lord bless you. Thanks for bearing with this super long one. I hope you're edified in the name of Jesus.